the best part of living consistently according to truth is that you don't have to remember what you said or to who you said it. Why? Because if it's truth, how does it come out? Every next time, it's going to come out the same way. The only thing is, how does it work when you try to speak truth and try to live according to the truth, but the people around you, the people that maybe have authority in your life, those with whom you're doing business, or for some of you, a brother or a sister, and they don't play fair. They're not playing by the same rules as you. Suddenly, we're no longer concerned about right and wrong. What are we concerned about? My fair share, right? Getting, what, getting what's, what's mine. Most conversations I hear about <clears throat> in the church today are protecting our way of life. It has little to do with godliness. But you hear the phrase, our way of life. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying life. And the things, I mean, I'm enjoying the air conditioning today. I enjoy the things that we have in life. But this concern sometimes takes over and takes precedent over godly living. And that's exactly what happens with this man who steps out of the crowd and he says something like, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, I hear what you're saying. I know what you mean. I'm trying my best to live accordingly. But could you talk to my brother that he would divide the inheritance with me? And to put it in a way that every sibling can understand, you remember when you had those conversations with your brother and your sister, he won't play fair, right? This man was concerned about his fair share in life, and Jesus is about to make it abundantly clear that his followers will not necessarily get their fair shake in life. And this is a, this is a tough lesson to learn in a, in a world that the squeaky wheel gets the grease, where if I don't speak up, if I don't take the initiative, if I don't say something, I might miss out. But Jesus is going to make it abundantly clear that life is more than what you eat, you know, nice restaurants, and what you wear, nice clothes. Everyone I've ever met has a story about some unfair disadvantage in life. Now think about it, I don't want to stir up too much trouble, but think back in your life, and whether it was all the way back to a brother or sister, not, not you guys, you're not going to think about that, but think about to a family matter, think about to a job that you had, think about to something that happened in school, or even just perhaps yesterday, some unfair advantage in life, and the need to find some person, something, to what? To blame. It just makes us feel better when I can point to something else or someone else and say it's, it's their fault, right? I can blame it on But everything would make you feel better if you just knew that why you didn't get that promotion. I mean... Why her instead of you? You could have made ends meet if you'd only gotten that raise. Your boss is such a jerk. The world has convinced you that all of your hang-ups are whose responsibility? Probably your parents, some teacher, somebody in life, and all of your problems that you're facing right now are somebody else's. 
Even parents would rather blame a teacher or somebody rather than take responsibility in the raising of their children, perhaps. As a result, the story of your life sounds like the chorus to a sad country song. I won't sing it for you. And when you look around, you whine with the likes of Jeremiah, and you say, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all they seem so happy that deal treacherously with me? Why do they get away with it? And I seem to get caught every time. Life's not fair, but we have this need to know why. Now be careful here, because this is the poison pill. Because as you get focused on the why of the problems of your life, and the search to blame and fix the the fault on someone else, it's just another way of saying, life's not fair. I want my fair share. Well, to answer this fairness question, Jesus points out the subtleties of covetousness. This is the poison pill. Luke chapter 12, down in verse 14, it always creeps into a conversation like this. And so he says to this brother, it's probably the younger brother, because the older brother has control of the father's inheritance or something. So he says to him, who made me a judge or a divider over you? So I'm going to quote this to you next time you come to me with some problem in life that you say, preacher, something's not fair. I'm going to say, well, who made me the divider of fairness in your life? And he says unto him, take heed, beware of this poison pill, covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Now, wait a minute. My brother's not playing fair. And you're telling me I've got the problem? That don't seem right. No matter how obvious the question is, no matter how obvious the answer is, if money is part of the solution, it is always suspect. Beware of covetousness. It tends to creep in to every conversation about fairness because money can spoil almost anything. And some pious person, even seated right here this morning, some pious person is going, oh no preacher, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. I get that. But all I know is, if money is on the table, no one ever said, you just take all you want, I won't worry about it. It's nearly impossible to come to an objective solution when money is involved, especially if it impacts my bank account, right? Your bank account. Even just, just ask the guy or lady, I don't know who it is, but ask the guy that just won the billion dollar lottery, right? Money isn't going to solve one of his problems. Whenever getting my fair share, whatever it is, hangs in the balance, then who among us can honestly say, it doesn't matter, I'm good with it. Actually, the brothers that we are introduced to each have the same root problem. Jesus has identified it as covetousness. Covetousness can be defined as the desire of anything, the desire of anything beyond Not just what is fair, but beyond what is necessary or essential to life, which can be found at the root, by the way, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. If you're rich, 
How much is enough? Rockefeller said, just a little bit more, right? And if you're poor, well, your conversation may be a little bit different, but it's always about fair share. Who among us hasn't ever noticed that someone else got the gift you wanted? <laughs> I don't know if it's it, back to your, your childhood days, right? Somebody got the gift you want. Maybe you're around the Christmas tree when you were little. Somebody else got the thing. that, or, or who doesn't keep, do you have kids that keep track of how much somebody got? Do your, your children ever do that? You, gotta, you, ever, you ever make sure that you got to have the equal number of gifts for each person? The reason is because people are looking at it, right? In all these kinds of circumstances, it's not about having what you need. It's about getting what you want what you think is fair, Jesus said, beware of covetousness, the feeling of unfairness, because after all, life's not fair. You already know that though, right? Jesus didn't come to make right all the inequities of life. Did you know that? Jesus did not come to make right all the inequities of life. Jesus came to release you from the necessity of those things. But with all the inequities of life, the question of this brother is the question that most every other brother or sister has ever asked. How can I be certain that I get my fair share? The outline, that's just the introduction. The outline's pretty simple, though. It won't take too long. The outline's just two points. First is man's foolishness in the matter, how we express our own foolishness in the matters of life, and then you'll see God's faithfulness in meeting our needs. More often than not, our hearts get wrapped up in the balance of poverty versus riches. But Christ clearly said, a man's life, verse 15, does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And so he speaks a parable to this point, verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth a lot, plentiful. In fact, more than he even anticipated. Christ quickly moves beyond the fairness doctrine. He gets at the heart of the matter and reveals man's foolishness in the matter. Perhaps the parable is a story that is to be applied to the brother who felt that he had been wronged and, G and, uh, and approached Jesus for the solution. But notice that Jesus offers no solution. He doesn't say, you know what, you're right. I'll go speak to your brother. He doesn't offer any solution to this man's circumstance, but rather speaks broadly to the heart of the matter. That's what Jesus always does, gets at the heart of the matter, and he first points out this foolish reasoning, verse 17. So he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? So Jesus is speaking this parable. This brother who feels like he's been wronged is listening, and I think he's going to get the point pretty quickly. So someone who has been blessed in life what shall I do? Because I have no room to bestow everything I have. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns. I will build greater barns. And there will I bestow all my fruits and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And the real problem is in that phrase at the beginning of verse 17. Because what does he do? He begins to think within himself, right? And the question he's pondering is, you guessed it, how can I be sure I get my fair share out of all of this? Two things reveal his foolishness. Worry, it's, it, first of all, it's just worry, plain and simple. This man's harvest is apparently more 
than he had prepared for. I like what Matthew Henry says at this point in his commentary. He says, the more men have, the more perplexity they have with it. Do you know that the more you have, the less satisfied you will likely be? Did you ever know that? How many times did we hear our mothers say, I never knew I was raised poor, right? And the more we have, the more we start thinking about it. No one ever slept better because they had more stuff. So the story goes of someone's life who's always looking to add just a little bit more, build just a little bit bigger, have just a little bit better. But then what happens next year? You've just obligated yourself to what? you got to make sure that your paycheck keeps up with all the stuff that you now have, right? And so if inflation happens to go, I mean, I've never seen this happen, but if inflation happens to go to something like 8.5%, right, then that money you had in the bank, that paycheck that you thought was going to cover everything now is, is, right? And now you have all this worry over all this stuff to try to keep up with everything. But I remind you of the words of Solomon. He knew all about great wealth. And yet he must have noticed how calmly and quietly his servants slept after a long, hard day's work. And Solomon wrote, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. And then he concluded, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. You cannot buy How foolish it is to worry over that which only brings more worry with it. Much better it would be to learn the lesson of Paul who learned that in whatever state I am, much or little, therewith to be what? Content. Because godliness with contentment is where you find great gain. Well, the second thing about the foolishness of this man's reasoning is that I use the word willful because it was just all about what he could do. And you see the personal pronouns there that we read It's what I will do. It's what I have. They are my crops. It's what I will bestow, my goods, my soul. And you get the impression he'll do just whatever he pleases with it because after all, it's mine and it's my fair share. Right? But of this attitude, you might be interested in reading what James said. You know these verses, perhaps. Well, we've been through James, but a long time ago. But you still may know these verses in James chapter verse 13 so go to now that person who says today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city remember these and we'll continue there a year and we'll buy and sell we'll start a business we'll do this and that make some investments and we'll get gain whereas you know not what shall be on tomorrow for what is your life but a Right? A vapor that appears for a little time and then is gone. The, the steam off your tea kettle, that quickly, life is over. As I often say at a funeral, it's the dash between the numbers. That's all your life is. Born, 1960. Dash and died. And that's the summary of your whole life. For what you ought to say is if the Lord will, will live and do this or that, right? Well, according to the Lord's will in these matters. But now you rejoice in your boastings. 
your plans, your ideas, what you thought to do. And all such rejoicing is evil. And so to him that knoweth to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is, he even says it's sin. If you have room to boast in your plans, then whose plans are they? Your plans, right? And if they are your plans, not only is it foolish, but it is evil, said James. But as many others, we often recognize this truth too late in life, and the things that truly matter are lost along the way in pursuit of our fair share, just a little bit more, forever trying to turn the corner, and we never quite do. I like what Corey Tinboom, you know this phrase, perhaps you've heard it before. Corey Tinboom says, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but it empties today of its strength. Think about that. Worry over all the stuff of life, over your fair share, over why this is wrong or right, or what they did. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but it will steal, it will rob, it will empty today of your strength. If your life is all about getting your fair share, then notice how this foolishness is rebuked down in verse 20, back in Luke 12, verse 20. So God said unto him, (laughs) pretty strong, you're foolish. This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall all these things be which thou hast provided, that you worried about, that you said was yours, that you were going to do something with. So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the man apparently was resting at night in the comfort of his home and all the stuff that he has, surrounded by all of his wealth and everything that he has laid up for himself. It was at the time when all is well that God interrupts his dream and speaks to him. Let me ask you the question, when do people tend to forget about God? When they are empty or when they are full? When do people tend to forget about God, right? When everything's going, I got the job, a little bit of money in the bank, things are going pretty good, and then the rug gets pulled out from under us, and I get the knock on the door, I get the phone call, I get the, because we tend to think more, a little bit more, I mean, after Go back to 9-11 for some of you. Remember what it was like after 9-11? Everybody was suddenly going to church and talking about God and all the great conversations. We tend to think more about eternity when things aren't going on. One, one of Solomon's servants, you heard, you've heard this, I'm sure, The Prayer of Agur. There was a book actually written by, about it. The Prayer of Agur. Here's what one of Solomon's servants said in Proverbs chapter 30. The Prayer of Agur. Give me two things. If you said two things in life, what two things would you pray for in life? Two things I request of you, Lord, before I die. That sounds pretty important, doesn't it? Here they are. Remove falsehood far from me, right? So I don't want lies told about me. I don't want to tell lies. I don't want to live above my means. I want to stay within the resources that I have. So remove those things far from me. And then he says, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is allotted or appropriate, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is my Lord, right? I've got everything I ever needed. 
or lest I be poor and I steal and profane the name of my God. How often the extremes, fullness or emptiness, causes us to deny God's faithfulness. And God calls on the wealthy man in our story to take account of his soul in the height of his personal glory. Then whose will all these things be? What will come of all your preparations? What then will take care of you in the time of death? Matthew Henry said he took great pains to lay up treasure in a world he was hastening from, and he took no care to lay up treasure in a world he was hastening to. Right? Jack brought it up this morning, the treasure trove of heaven. Down in verse 31, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things that you're asking about, all the fairness stuff of life, all these things will be cared for you. Now we turn to God's faithfulness. What follows is evidently a private conversation Jesus has with his disciples following the story. Verse 22, you see it sort of changes, and now he says to his disciples, so we got this guy that came talking about fairness. He tells the story about a rich man who thought he had everything, and now he turns to his disciples and he says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat, neither for the body what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment or clothing. There can be no mistake that life must consist of more than things. Now we know this instinctively. Because of all the stuff that we worry about. If the house is on fire, what do we do? What's the only thing we want to know? Did everybody make it out safely? But all the stuff in your house that you're so worried about, right? And when it comes to life and death, Matt, if the ship is sinking, well, women and children first, but if the ship is sinking, what's the only thing we want to know? How many people got off, right? How many lives, souls, as they say, were saved? And furthermore, God has promised to care for those things in a way that we never could. All those things that we're so worried about, but instinctively we know we can't take it with us, and, and we would easily discard if it came to life and death. And to illustrate this, Jesus gives two common occurrences as examples of his provision. First is the fowl of the air, and the other is the flower of the field. For all the things you're worried about, the parable described the worry of the rich. Now he sort of illustrates the worry of the poor. This is more than just dealing with the haves and the have-nots because, as you will see, they seem to both have the same root problem because the love of money, after all, is the root of all evil, which while they coveted after, they erred from the faith and they pierced themselves through with many sorrows, 1 Timothy 6. And so... Believe you me, both the rich and the poor have the same root problem. The parable reminds us that all I have comes from who? God. Thank you. His ownership. Now Jesus teaches the real heart of the matter to his disciples because all that I need comes from who? God. That's right. Well, consider first the fowl of the air, verse 24. Consider the ravens, for they don't, they don't sow, they don't reap, they're not, they're not, you know, frustrated. 
which neither have storehouses nor barns. Well, squirrels, squirrels take all those walnuts and they put them in my yard. Do you have the squirrels like that? But, you know, but anyway, for the rest of them, they're not worried about it. They don't have any storehouse and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowl? So don't you think God would care for you at least that much? And which of you taking thought can add to his statue one cubit, right? One bit to your size. Then if, if not able to do that thing which is least, why do you take thought for all the, why are you so worried about all the rest? You can't change the least. And so the fact of the matter is that for all of your worrying and fretting, there is absolutely nothing of life's essentials that you can change. If God, therefore, can provide for the birds, don't you think that he'll provide for his children? If the insignificant elements of creation are under his care, how much more do you think he'll care for you into whom he has breathed the breath of life? You're the eternal soul. How much more will God care for you? God has given you life and a body. Don't you think he'll care for it? God has promised to supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Listen to the calming effect of casting all of your cares upon him. For all those worries of your life, casting all those cares upon him. Philippians chapter 4. And I read it from the uh, New Living Translation. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for what He has done. Now, if you do this, you will experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. The other illustration is that of the flower of the field, verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin, and yet I say unto you that Solomon, this guy we just read about, in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So if God so clothed the grass which today is in the field, tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And seek not what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be of doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your father knoweth that you have need of these things. Solomon is described by the queen of Sheba. You ever hear this story? 1 Kings chapter 10. And she thought, having heard the stories about Solomon's wealth, she wanted to go see it for herself. And after seeing it for herself, do you remember her conclusion? You know the phrase, you just didn't know it came from 1 Kings chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba. The half has not been told. Imagine that. And yet, here we read that he, King Solomon, was not arrayed as fancy, as intricately, as wonderfully as a flower in the field that decorates the tall grass that today is in the field and tomorrow is cast out. We consider the speed of our computers. They can store masses. You remember your first computer? I mean, my, you, you know this to be true. Your, your phone now does more than my first computer ever did. Now, some of you may be like 
me are old enough to remember the cards that you used to put into your computers to make them do certain things, right? And now, I mean, massive. And we can do things faster than ever, but I tell you, that does not begin to compare with the complexity of what God has done. We've seen that in the book of Genesis as we've worked our way through the creation story. The half has not been told, whether you're studying about heaven, whether you're worried about the things of life, the intricacies of life and death, the half has not been. Solomon's father said, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that you would be concerned to visit him? O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, Psalm chapter 8. When you consider God's work of creation, do you still think he cannot provide for you? O ye of little faith. No question of fairness was ever about what you need. But in reality, it is always a question of what you want. O ye of little faith. 